Hey, thanks for listening to Cornerstone Church. You can find us on the web at akcornerstone.org. And we want you to know it's our prayer that the Holy Spirit will use this message to either save you through the good news about Jesus Christ, grow you into the likeness of Jesus, or send you to proclaim Jesus in the Spirit's power. Now let me introduce our speaker, Jim Stump. Would you come up here? Jim is just a very recent friend of mine, maybe the last 48 hours or so. We've had an opportunity to have him speak to our staff on Friday and Saturday. About 80 of the men from the church here came, and it was an incredible time of encouragement. Uh, Jim has uh, several things that I would say um, qualify him uh, so that you should open your ears and listen closely. He has a, a lifetime of ministry experience, effective ministry experience. He's been on the campus of Stanford for over four decades. Uh, ministering to student athletes there. And if you've read his book, we tried to hand out about 70 or 80 of those over the last several months. Uh, Maybe you already are aware of the story, but just an incredible ministry of how God has used him in powerful ways to make disciples. Another great um, point of validation is this is the brother of Priscilla, judge who's in our church here, been for a long time. And if you know Priscilla, that would speak volumes to Jim. And then, thirdly, and most importantly, here's what I can say in the last 48 hours, that this guy right here is the real deal. He's the real deal. Jesus is always on his lips and in his heart. I can tell you that. And what he shares, I believe, is from the heart of God. And so I encourage you to listen attentively and be prepared to be challenged by the Lord. God bless you, brother. Well, thank you. Am I on? Good. You can hear me. You may regret that, but... uh, Well, thank you so much, Pastor Brad, for, first of all, inviting me to come up home to Alaska. I was raised out on Lake Iliamna, and uh, that was quite an experience growing up. I won't won't take you into all that, but I I just had a ball growing up out there. And uh, so when I arrived here, Pastor Brad met me at the airport along with Hugh Lee. Some of you may know Hugh Lee. And uh, it's the first time I've ever had a pastor meet me at the airport. So it gives you an idea of what kind of man Brad is. And got to know the pastoral staff over lunch uh, on Friday. Some really, really good pizza, uh, of which I did not partake because they all looked so hungry and I didn't want to take anything away from them. But I have been treated so well by uh, you all here, and I just want to say in front of everyone that I, I appreciate so much, Brad, your, uh, your welcoming hospitality, having me in your home on Friday night for dinner. Um, it, was, it was just wonderful. And I'm sure that does not come as a surprise to any of you who know uh, them, our, our staff here, and you know, it was interesting when I first got the call from Pastor Brad to ask me to come up here. I, I don't like being surprised, and so I went online to see, you know, what, what he looked like, uh, how he was dressed, um, you know, and everything. I, I wanted to make sure I didn't have to bring a coat and tie, and uh, that was validated very quickly uh, that I didn't have to. Um, another thing I, I learned about him is that he's a pacer. Um, he, he doesn't stand in one place for very long. In fact, I noticed that watching him preach is kind of like watching a tennis match from midcourt. You know, just... 
Um, but anyway, uh, I'm not a pacer, so I'm going to give your necks a rest this morning. Uh, also, the sermon that I clicked on to see what he was like was a sermon about Zacchaeus from Luke chapter 19. And, uh, you know, he made the comment, Zacchaeus was a wee little man. And I don't know if he was preparing uh, you for my arrival or what. But I identify with Zacchaeus greatly. He had trouble seeing in crowds too. But anyway, uh, he did a great job on that. So it's uh, been wonderful spending time with friends, brief though it has been. I had breakfast with Lauren Lehman the other day, and he and his wife Carolyn are here, and longtime dear friends, and Marianne and John Hannock back there, and just people who I, I resonate with deeply. And so I, I thank all of you who are, who are here. And of course, spending the time with Priscilla is just a special treat. But uh, let, me, let me begin this morning with a question. Who are the people who have helped to make you who you are today? I'm referring to the people who have marked you, uh, who have made a significant impact, a lasting impression on your life. The individuals who at a critical moment redirected your path such that today you look back and you say, wow, I never would have become who I am today were it not for that person's influence. I'm, I'm thinking primarily of people outside your family, uh, a teacher, a youth pastor, a coach, a uh, an adult in your neighborhood, a man in your church, people who really had no vested interest in your future, who nonetheless invited you into their lives in a way that has indelibly marked your life. If you can remember someone that fits that description, then you know by experience what a deep and lasting influence that can make. But frankly, not everyone has someone jump to mind when I ask that question. I was speaking at a, at a uh, seminar at a church down in the Bay Area a few years ago, and I opened with the question, how many of you have a mentor? And one of the guys got up and ran out of the room crying. And I thought, wow, I haven't even started to talk yet, and uh, he's already rejecting me. No, but it, that wasn't the situation. He, he went outside, and when I finally finished, I went out to find him, see if he was still around. And he was sitting on a hill on the lawn outside weeping. And I, I found out that uh, he was a man who had always wanted a mentor. He'd been to seminary. He had pastored two churches. He'd been through two marriages. He'd gone from job to job. He was a sharp guy with a huge hole in his life because he had never had an adult male figure that would build a relationship with him. So how many fills are there out there right now? I asked the question. In uh, Atlanta, there's a young man who leads a, a group of men who get together, men in their late 20s and 30s, who get together on a fairly regular basis. These are, these are men who have committed their lives to follow Jesus uh, in, their, in the business world and whatever profession they find themselves. And so they're, they're men of significance. And the fellow who... Uh, who basically is in charge of that group, did a survey recently. And he asked the 400 men who were there, how many of you have an older man in your life for advice, encouragement, accountability, prayer, anything like that? In that poll, 
only 2% said they had someone like that in their life. But a follow-up question indicated, if you had someone, would you be open to meeting with them? Guess what? All 98% of the remaining people said, absolutely, I would do that. I have a wonderful mentor who just had his 90th birthday. Um, He has three engineering degrees from Stanford. He was co-founder of one of the leading engineering consulting groups in the world of its kind. Uh, He's been an elder at his church, Menlo Park Presbyterian Church, for over 50 years. Uh, He's on the board of Fuller Seminary. I love meeting with him every other Thursday morning, uh, partly because he always buys, but mainly because he's got a vast reservoir of wisdom and strength spiritually. And uh, he answers every question I have for him by quoting several verses from the scriptures that apply to the situation. I think he's got the whole Bible memorized. I mean, it just puts me to shame. But I love that. I love having a resource like that in my life. Men have the reputation, uh, especially among their wives, of uh, always trying to handle things by themselves, especially when they're lost or, uh, as they would say, I'm just confused, honey, don't, don't worry about it. Um, however, if given a choice, a vast number of men in our culture today would give anything for the help of an older, older person in their life. One of my heroes in life is Howard Hendricks. He was a professor at Dallas Seminary for many years, and, and he's recently gone home to heaven where great rewards await him. But he, uh, he greatly impacted my life in so many ways. We first met at a conference back in the late 70s when we had something in common. He was the chaplain for the Dallas Cowboys, and I was the chaplain for the San Francisco 49ers. This was back when very few teams in the NFL actually had chaplains. Uh, and we were meeting to share our ignorance and try to encourage each other with what we had learned that seemed to work in our areas. And... Uh, today, almost every team in the NFL, by the way, has a chaplain, except for one team. Guess who that is? Yeah, it's the Raiders. Wouldn't you have known that? Okay. And uh, even the Raiders have a chapel service before their games. So when Bill Walsh left Stanford after taking Stanford to two consecutive major bowl wins to assume the head coaching job of the San Francisco 49ers, he asked me to go with him to help turn the attitude of the team around, and I told him I'd go if I could still maintain my relationship with the athletes at Stanford, because that was, that was where my heart was, and that's, that's what I loved. But I digress. Back to Howard Hendricks. Uh, he was one of the most gifted communicators that I've ever heard, and in his book, As Iron Sharpens Iron, which I would highly recommend that you buy and read, um, He talks about a man literally taking him off the street when he was 10 years old and taking him to church and helping him become a follower of Jesus. If that man had been available to pour his life into, uh, if if he'd not been available to pour his life into Howard Hendricks' life over the ensuing several years, literally hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people, would have been deprived of being impacted by Howard Hendricks both directly and through the men that he's trained in his seminary classes and through conferences where I've heard him speak in many places. Wherever you turn today, you'll find men looking for a guide, a coach, a model, an advisor. They're looking for someone who knows something about life. In essence, they're looking for a mentor. How many of you have heard of the Apostle Paul? That's a fair, fair number of you. 
Brad, you need to kind of get on it with these people that didn't raise their hands. Uh, so anyway, that's good. So how many of you have heard of a Jew named Joseph from the island of Cyprus? One, two, three, four. Okay, that's good. Um, four out of 300 or so. Brad, again. Uh, no, just kidding. Um, the, the scriptures actually do not tell us how he became a follower of Jesus. Perhaps he was among the 3,000 visitors to Jerusalem at Passover who responded to Peter's impassioned invitation uh, and proclamation of the gospel in Acts chapter 2. Whatever the circumstances, the message of the Messiah took root in his life, and he began to identify with the early church. As an indication of his commitment to Jesus, Joseph sold some or all of his property uh, in Cyprus and brought the proceeds to Jerusalem, where he donated them to the church's benevolence fund. And following custom, the church leaders responded to uh, Joseph's doing that by giving him a new name, Son of Encouragement, or Barnabas. Ever heard of Barnabas? Yeah. Yeah, I think we've all heard of Barnabas. So, let me ask you, how is it that Barnabas, who is frankly a relatively minor um, character in Scripture, how could it be said that he changed history? The answer is because Barnabas came to the aid of Saul, who was later to become Paul, after his dramatic uh, Damascus Road experience, and Barnabas mentored Paul, or Saul, in the faith. Were it not been for Barnabas, who knows what would have happened to Saul, or to the early church for that matter. So while we rightly think of Paul as the strategic spokesman for the early church in the New Testament, we must never forget that behind Paul, there was a Barnabas. We're all faced with a major challenge in our lives. What are we going to do with the limited amount of time that we have available to us every day? How are we going to maximize those 24 hours in each day? How can I be most efficient in that? Well, how we choose to answer that question has significant ramifications for ourselves, for our spouses, for our families, if we're married, um, and for the kingdom especially. How do you find a model upon whom to pattern our lives? Well, all you have to do is go to the Gospels, and you see Jesus, and, and uh, you see our Lord committing Himself to putting in place His plan to see the world reached with His good news. We read how He was constantly checking in with the Father, but uh, at, at the same time, He, you know, wanting to make sure He was on track, He was there. But he never slowed down. He knew he only had a very short time, three years, to, uh, uh, to go before he knew he was going to give his life. And so he wanted to maximize those three years. Uh, the scriptures make it plain that he had his eye on the cross. But uh, that didn't, didn't stop him. He had people around him who were saying, come and feed us, come and talk to us, um, come and do all those things, heal us. Um, and he did from time to time. But his focus was on those 12 men. And with, with all those multitudes demanding his attention, he said, no, I'm sorry, I can't spend all that much time with you folks. I've got 12 guys here that I've got to prepare to go out and change the world. So that happened, by the way, after the Holy Spirit fell on them on the day of Pentecost. They went out and changed the world. So for those of you who may not have read it, Robert Coleman's classic, 
the master plan of evangelism, is the closest thing to the Gospels that I've found as far as a ministry manual goes. In the book, Coleman lays out the principles that Jesus used to train his men to go out and change the world. Believe it or not, in two years, it will mark the sixth decade for me in sports ministry. I'm not even six decades old. Yeah, I am. I'm 70. Um, But I've been involved in sports ministry all those years. And uh, my last 44 years have been spent at Stanford University. I obviously have a passion for the athletes there. Uh, I don't know how many more years that the Lord has me on this earth and uh, before He calls me home, but my goal is and always has been to have the greatest impact for the kingdom that I can possibly have in the years that the Lord leaves me here. So I've geared my ministry to accomplish that. I believe the most efficient investment of my time is to pour what I have learned about building God's kingdom into the lives of the athletes at Stanford and empower them and challenge them to go out and change their world wherever the Lord plants them. Now, I'm not nearly as efficient as Jesus was. So in my ministry at Stanford, I've chosen to meet with approximately 30 to 35 guys a week instead of 12. But I meet with them one-on-one on an ongoing basis, and I pour my life into theirs. Given their workout schedules and their practice schedules, Uh, that's basically the only time slots I have available to me. So my work week begins on Monday morning at 8 o'clock at my little table in the sports cafe that the athletes all call my office. And office hours start at 8 o'clock Monday morning, and the first guy slides in, and we uh, talk about uh, what's going on in his life with with his sport, with his girlfriend, with his family, whatever. And then we get in the Word together and talk about what, really, really is significant as far as honing them to be the kind of men that God wants them to be. So at 9 o'clock, there's a guy tapping him on the shoulder saying, you're, in, you're infringing on my time. Would you please go to class like you're supposed to? And he goes to class, and that next guy slides in, and we spend an hour together. He goes to class, the next guy slides in, and we spend an hour together. And it's just like that every day, back to back to back. And I absolutely love it. Um, during that hour that I spend with each one of those guys, um, and I, I, I very readily call it an investment. It's not time I spend. It's an investment of time in these guys. It's all about building a relationship with them and building a love for Jesus into them. So, by the way, the, the first time I, I meet with them, I tell them that any questions they have are welcome. And if I can't answer the questions using at least two Scripture passages, um, then don't listen to me. Because, you know, it, it's easy to twist a scripture, uh, but it's, it's tough to make a case if there are more passages in one. So I, I always ask them to tell me about their spiritual journey, and then I tell them about my spiritual journey. And that usually reveals their background, where they're coming from. And then I, I take them through a, a little booklet called, Would You Like to Know God Personally? I think I've got a copy of it up here. Yeah. Here it is. It's uh, just a, a simple booklet that just goes through four steps on how a person begins a relationship with Jesus. And so I, I go through that with them because I, I tell them, you're obviously a smart person or you wouldn't be here at Stanford. So it, the evidence is so strong for a commitment to Christ that if you don't know him already, you're going to want to know him. So let me make sure that you know how when that time is right for you. And that's how I, how I take them through it. So... Um, uh, a wonderful example of, of that 
is a guy named Troy Walters, and Troy's given me permission to use his name. In fact, he's encouraged me to use his story because it's, it's reminiscent of a lot of guys. Troy came to Stanford uh, from the state of Texas. He'd grown up in a great family. His dad was a college football coach, and Troy was not recruited uh, by very many teams. Two teams offered him scholarships out of all the teams in the country. And he was about five, six and a half, five, seven, about 160 pounds. So certainly not your prototypical wide receiver, was he? Anyway, people said the only reason he got a scholarship was the fact that his dad and the head coach were good friends. So he showed up on campus with nobody really expecting a lot out of him from a football standpoint. But at our first uh, team Bible study, Troy showed up, and he had a Bible with him that was well-worn, and I thought, yeah, got me one. Because I always pray that God will send me at least three or four guys a year who have a good background in the Scriptures and who really want to walk out their relationship with Jesus. So uh, at the end of that meeting, Troy came to me, and he said, Jim, I'd like to start meeting with you. And I said, that'd be great. So at our first meeting, I said, Troy, I just want you to know that I always go through this little booklet with people, so don't be offended. Uh, you, I know you've got a good background. But I went through it, and the fourth principle says we must individually receive Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Then we can experience God's love and plan for our lives. And there's a verse there, Revelation 3.20, where Jesus says, Look, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him. And I said, Troy, have you ever opened the door of your life and invited Jesus in? And he said, uh, well, I've, I've cracked it a few times. And I said, have you ever opened it? He said, no. But I know I need to, and I know the time's right, so could we please do that right now? <laughs> and we prayed together, and he invited Jesus into his life. He now, he went on, by the way, to be, become Stanford's only ever award winner of the Boletnikoff Trophy, which is for the best wide receiver in America. Set Pac-10 records all over the place as a receiver, got drafted in the pros, played eight years in the pros, and he's now the wide receiver coach at the University of Colorado. But he also has his own ministry, and he travels and speaks and just has a wonderful time leading people to Jesus and sharing his journey with them. So, uh, during that hour that I spend with guys every week, there's a, a time to ask questions. Uh, most of them want feedback on what their liberal professors are telling them or, or what their peers are pushing them toward. And especially those freshmen with whom I meet are faced oftentimes with radically different ideas uh, and a radically different value system than that with which they were raised. And I, I hear a comment a lot that goes something like this, Jim, I... You know, my, my parents raised me to believe a certain way and to do certain things, and now my professors and my dorm mates are challenging everything I've ever believed. I want to be cool, but how do I handle this? So we talk about it. Um, I'm at most of the Stanford football practices, uh, and they're in camp right now, and, and I'm missing uh, a few days of that, but it's worth it to be home, uh, I'll tell you. And, but when I get back, during, during Gatorade breaks or water breaks, uh, during practices, when guys are just, you know, kind of on their own, I, I spend that time just getting to know guys better, walking up to them, encouraging them. Hey, that was a great pick you made there, great tackle, you know, it was a great pass complete, whatever, you know, just to, just to build that relationship. Because, frankly, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And I know that's a cliche, but it is so, so true. 
Anyway, the point is I need to start with a larger funnel than Jesus did. So from the 30 to 35 that I meet with regularly, some guys begin to separate themselves. It just happens. When I was a new believer and I just joined the staff of Campus Crusade for Christ, I got to know the founder of Campus Crusade fairly well. His name was Bill Bright, amazing man of God. And one day I, I asked him what he looked for in a staff member. And he said this, he said, Jim, I look for two things. I look for a heart for God and a teachable attitude. And so that's what I've kind of made my parameters around. I look for men with a heart for God and a teachable attitude and also a commitment to being obedient to God's calling on their lives. Then most summers, uh, I've, I've brought a couple of these athletes with me on a mission trip to Alaska to speak in youth camps and churches and out in some native villages, and then we usually wind up at my old homestead on Lake Eliamna and spend a few days there just being in the Word together, doing a little fishing, and, and uh, it's, it's wonderful. God has just used that. Um, let me just tell you a quick story uh, about how God used that in one young man's life. Back in the early 90s, uh, one of the Stanford football coaches that I had led to Christ uh, back in the 70s and, and had mentored him, uh, he came to me one day and he said, Jim, we're recruiting this kid from the Northwest, and, and uh, he loves to hunt and fish, and he's a great, great athlete. Every football program in America wants this guy to come and play for him, but we really want him here at Stanford. He's a very bright kid, and I've told him about you, and so I'd like you to be at the dinner we're going to have for the recruits that are coming in this weekend. So I showed up at the dinner, and there were name tags outside, and I put on my name tag and walked into the room, and just as I walked in this door across the room, it wasn't a large room, but across, across the room, uh, I looked, and coming in the other doorway was a young man who filled up the doorway, and he was about 6'6", 260 pounds as a senior in high school, and he had his name tag on, and he looked over at me, and he saw my name, and he came striding across the room in about three steps and began to poke me in the chest, if you can believe it. Just like that, physically hit me. And he said, I know who you are. I know you play ping pong. I want you to know that I have never been beaten. And if I come to Stanford, I'm going to kick your... And I said, well, that's an interesting way to start a conversation. Uh, tell you what, Brad, if you come to Stanford, uh, I promise to give you the opportunity, and we'll, we'll have a match and see what happens. So he accepted the scholarship, came to Stanford, and first, after the first day of practice, as he was walking off the field, he came running over to me and he said, I want you on the, on the table tonight in the dorm. So I said, okay, I'll be there. So I showed up a few minutes, uh, few minutes late, but uh, I watched him finish off a game with one of the guys he was playing at the time, and it, quick hands, you know, he had a six foot six inches tall, he had a long wingspan, he could get to pretty much any ball. And he was just killing these guys. And he finished that game, and, and then he said, Okay, Stump, your turn. Get on the table. And I said, No, Brett, that's not the way we do it around here. Uh, here's what we're going to do. If you beat me, you never have to talk to me again. But if I beat you, then you've got to start meeting with me for an hour each week, and you've got to go to church with me every Sunday. And he said, Well, that's not going to happen, because I'm going to kick your back. Um, and I said, okay. So um, I warmed up against him playing left-handed, and uh, I, was, I was winning most of the points playing left-handed. Finally, he said, ah, I think I got you down now. I said, uh, let's play. And I said, well, 
you don't mind if I use my good hand now, do you? And his face turned white and his mouth dropped open and I knew I had him. And uh, I beat him 21 to 1. And uh, he, he very humbly came over afterwards and said, uh, so when do we start meeting? And uh, <laughs> um, so he was a bright guy. He wound up graduating with two engineering degrees from Stanford and played four years in the NFL with the, uh, with the Cowboys and the Broncos. But he, he was not a believer and had never really examined the evidence for a commitment to Christ. So over those next few weeks, we began to examine the evidence. And after the second week, he said, you know, I'm ready. I, I've had enough questions answered that I see this is for real. And I want to begin a relationship with Jesus. So he invited Jesus into his life and then just began to take off in his growth. And pretty soon he was bringing guys to me and saying, Jim, these guys need to, need to learn what, you, uh, what you've been teaching me. And a lot of those guys became believers. Uh, when Brett went into the NFL, he, he became a player chaplain for teams that he was with. It was just wonderful to see how God was working in his lives, uh, in, in, in his life. And uh, when we uh, were up here in Alaska, we had a great time together. And then as we were going back to the Bay Area, we got on the airplane. As we were flying back, he turned to me and he said, You know, Jim, I think I've learned more in these 10 days that I've been with you here in Alaska than I've learned from all my professors in four years at Stanford. So I, I could kind of relate to what he was saying because what really matters in life? Yeah, education's important. Don't get me wrong. But what really matters is where you're going to spend eternity and how you're going to spend this life. And those are the crucial issues, and he'd come to terms with those issues. So most athletes are not going to be vulnerable in a small group situation. There's plenty of room for small groups, believe me. Uh, I, I think small groups are great. Um, they offer wonderful ways to teach biblical principles, a uh, great way for guys to invite friends to come uh, who aren't followers of Jesus yet and they're searching for answers in life. But it's my strong belief that our major focus as men and women needs to be one-on-one mentoring of the next generation. So most coaches will tell their players that they can come and talk to them about anything at any time. However, the players are concerned that if the coach thinks that they're struggling in an area of their lives, that might, uh, that might impact their playing time because they won't be focused. So, therefore, they need someone safe to come and talk to. Last year, I had three individuals who I had never met with one-on-one who sought me out over a weekend when we were on the road. And each one of these individuals came to me uh, separately and said, you know, one of them said, I just found out that my mom's got cancer. Another one said that my best friend from high school was killed in a car crash. Another one said it was his uncle who uh, was just divorcing his favorite aunt. You know, stuff was happening, major stuff. And each of them said, I can't go to the coach because I know he would think I'd be defocused. But I needed somebody I could trust to come and talk to. And the guys who meet with you tell me that that you're safe. So we had that time. Also, most guys on the teams uh, there at Stanford were stars in high school, and they soon learned that not everyone can start. I mean, there's only so many starting positions. And if they're confident in their abilities, they can't go to their coach and say, Coach, you're an idiot. You ought to be playing me ahead of that guy. But they can come to me and say, My coach is an idiot. He ought to be playing me ahead of that guy. So they get it off their chest and... And uh, I can begin to give them some perspective and help them figure out 
what God is trying to teach them through that situation. And that's validated again and again by parents and coaches who see the results in these kids' lives. I was in Spokane, Washington not too long ago to perform a wedding ceremony for a professional baseball player who became a follower of Jesus with me at Stanford his freshman year. And at the reception afterwards, I was sitting with his father. And he said, you know, Jim, it's a wonderful thing that you do for the athletes at Stanford. And I'm not trying to pat myself on the back. I'm just quoting what this, what this father said. He said, I truly believe that if Jason had not had you to meet with every week his freshman year, that he would have left Stanford because of all the frustrations he found on the field and in the classroom. You helped, him gui- you helped guide him through all those minefields. And for that, his mother and I will forever be grateful to you. Well, Jason not only went on to become a first-team All-American, but far more importantly, he was instrumental in his mom and his older brother beginning a relationship with Jesus. Well, let me close with this. In John chapter 15, verse 16, Jesus said, You did not choose me, but I chose you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Then the Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Men and women, everyone invests their life in some way, simply by virtue of living. No moment can be saved for another day. Time once spent can never be recaptured. And if this life is the seed time of eternity, how do you best spend your life preparing for your time with God? The Scriptures tell us to invest in the fruit that will remain. What is the fruit that lasts? The Bible teaches us that this imperishable fruit is human beings. And you never know what the ripple effect will be. Let me tell you a quick story. I was invited back in 1988 to go to Seoul, Korea, uh, where they were having the Olympics. And there was a conference we were having for 10 days right before the Olympics started. And there were 500 people from 120 countries of the world that were there who wanted to either learn how to establish a sports ministry in their country or how to expand the one they already had established. And I was asked to come and give a couple of seminars. And so I arrived after a 13-and-a-half-hour flight, uh, arrived in Seoul, and was bused to the building where we were all going to be staying and having our meetings. And as I checked in, the person who was checking me in said, you're the, you're the second person in your room, but there's going to be eight people in that room. There are four bunk beds. And so just, just be aware the guys will be coming in during the night. So I went into the room, and, and I climbed up on the second uh, level of the bunk because I didn't want a guy coming in in the middle of the night and sticking his foot in my face as I was trying to sleep and vaulting himself up to the second level. So I figured I'd protect myself that way. And I, I vaguely remembered during the night uh, somebody coming in and rolling into the bunk right, right below me. And the next morning when the alarm went off, this guy who was in the bunk right below me, um, yeah, he, he's just one of those guys you, you love to hate in the morning. Because he bounced out of bed and he said, Whoa, what a beautiful day. Let's open those curtains. And, and everybody else is going, Oh my God, who is this guy? And um, uh, by the way, one of my roommates was, uh, have you ever seen the guy who has the rainbow wig on, who is all these, at all these sporting events? He sits right behind the goalposts or right behind the basket. That guy was my roommate. He's a little weird, but uh, not being judgmental, just, just an observation. Um, <laughs> But anyway, when this, this guy who was 
going around introducing himself to everyone. He'd say, hi, I'm Jean-Marc. I'm from Paris. And, and um, finally he got to me and he said, hi, I'm Jean-Marc from Paris. And I said, well, I'm Jim Stump. And he said, you're Jim Stump? And I said, yeah. He said, I've wanted to meet you my whole life. He said, you're my spiritual grandfather. And I said, what? <laughs> and he said, what, well, do you remember this guy? And he gave me the name of a guy that I'd led to Christ when I was living in England. Um, right out of college. And I said, of course I remember him. He said, well, after he graduated, he joined Campus Crusade staff and was assigned to the University of Paris. And I was a student at the University of Paris. I was an atheist. And one day I was just sitting in the, out, outside at one of the tables and he came up and sat down next to me to eat his lunch. And we got started talking and met again the next week, met again the next week. I got my questions answered. Eventually, I became a follower of Jesus. And I said, Jean-Marc, what are you doing now? And he said, I'm the chaplain to the French Olympic team. And boy, what, what a thrill. What a thrill. He said, I'm only here for this one night, and then I'm going to the Olympic Village. And I said, you're here for one night. Out of 500 people, God puts you in the bunk right below me. <laughs> what are the chances? But God just wanted to encourage me and to say, keep being faithful. And I encourage each one of you, keep being faithful. Uh, You never know what God's going to do with our faithfulness. Uh, We had kind of a funny thing happen. I'm I'm at most of the football practices, and last week, uh, before I left to come up here, uh, we were having a scrimmage, and and there's a a guy on the defensive line for Stanford who is a a tremendous athlete, um, but he won't have anything to do with me. And his mom is a saint. She loves him, loves the fact that God's put me there on that campus. She prays for me. She prays for her son. And she said, Some, somehow I know God's going to reach my son, Jim, and I, maybe he'll use you. So anyway, I was, I was standing at the side of the practice field, and he was out there scrimmaging, came off, and he was all sweaty and, and in a very vulgar uh, expression, he asked where the water was. And one of the guys who was standing next to him was a starting defensive back who, who began to snicker. And, uh, and the guy turned around, and then he saw me. I was hiding behind some of the other players. And uh, the guy saw me and said, Oh, Mr. Stump, I'm so sorry. I shouldn't have said that. And uh, Wayne, the defensive back, said, You know, what you ought to do really is set up a time to go talk with Jim. And, and Jim will show you how to find living water then you'll never be thirsty again. (laughs) So, talking about spiritual matters right there on the sidelines. Don't tell the coaches. (laughs) But, uh, you know, my book has many more examples of that. I think there may be a few more copies back there. And Pastor Brad was very generous in saying that if any of you would like a copy, the church will will pick up the tab for that. So, uh, anyway, uh, as we look at, at the Scriptures... We see that Jesus invested his life in people. When he died, he died for people. In John 6, 27, he urged his followers, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. People are important. People last forever. So let me encourage you, if you're, if you're not being mentored yet, find an older person or someone who's older in their faith than you are, and when you sense a connection... Ask them to mentor you. And if you're not mentoring anyone yet, find someone.
to mentor and uh, begin to meet with them. And you, you, you might want to say something like, uh, hey, why don't we grab a cup of coffee sometime? It'd be fun to get to know you better. And if that meeting goes well, say, yeah, why don't we do this again in a couple of weeks? And if that meeting goes well, say, why don't we do this on a regular basis? And just see where God takes it. Uh, don't be intimidated by the word mentor. It's not like you have to know all the answers. Believe me, God taking me out of Pyle Bay, Alaska on Lake Eliamna and putting me at Stanford University for 44 years? You've got to be kidding me. God's got a sense of humor, first of all. And these guys are all so much more intelligent than I am. It's, it's crazy. But somehow God's used me. And I, I don't really have a lot of answers for that. But uh, uh, if you're not mentoring anyone, find them and do it. Well, consider Jesus' final command before he left this earth as he was addressing a group of 500 people who had come to watch him. He said, go and build large, beautiful buildings. No, that's not what he said, was it? No, he said, go and make disciples. Go and make disciples. Learners, people who will follow his ways. The Lord was describing a ministry of multiplication. And if I understand my New Testament correctly, there are only two things that God's going to take off this planet. One is His Word, and number two is people who know Him. And if you're investing His Word into people's lives, you're building a legacy that will last into eternity. Let's pray. Father God, what a joy to know You. What a privilege to know You. Thank You for who You've called us to be and how You've called us to be involved in Your kingdom. The fact that you've entrusted us, Father, Father, to, to be your representatives, your ambassadors even, in this world that is so desperately trying to find answers. I pray that, uh, that you would call each one of us to be faithful men and women, to represent the way uh, you deserve to be represented, Father. We love you so much, and we can't thank you enough for being who you are in our lives. In your powerful name I pray. Amen.